This is Chris White, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Chris White. Uh, I am Managing Director of the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. I co-teach a class on entrepreneurship, and I'm co-author of a book called Changing Your Company from the Inside Out. So you already said this very interesting word uh, that I want to hone in on, which is this, this phrase, social intrapreneur. Intra, like uh, like intranet, in, not in internet, right? Internal to the organization, which I think is the hint. But why I think this is such an interesting term is I'm, I'm reading this book, and it really, to me, um, one of the, f- the first things that came across to me was we give so much credit to all of these startups and all of these entrepreneurs who are doing things in, in different ways. And and all of these people, we sort of celebrate this culture of startup, et cetera. And yet most of us still don't work for a startup, right? Most of us mm-hmm. are thinking through these issues of we know there are things that need to be changed, but we don't, we're not going to jump off and go start our own company. And what I love about this book is essentially it says there's, there's hope for you. You are, like you said, a, a social <laughs> intrapreneur and you, and you can do it. So, I mean, is that, that was my sort of take. What is your, how do you define social intrapreneur? Social entrepreneurship is about creating positive change without authority in organizations. And uh, we look at uh, four different kinds of social innovation. It can be in the products and services of companies. It can be in the way that people are treated, the culture of the organization. Uh, It can be in the practices and processes such as sustainable supply chains. Uh, And it can be in the interface with the public. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting uh, distinction because so often when we use, a, you know, just like startups, so often when we use the word innovation, there's a connotation there that we're either talking about a new fun tech product or something in the supply chain. But there's a whole lot more to how an organization runs than just sort of those two things. And all of those are in, in desperate need of innovation in, in most organizations. I'd say so. And to your point, Dave, uh, especially for recent MBA students who are leaving with uh, probably a decent chunk of debt, uh, the opportunity to make a positive difference in the world uh, while being able to have a a reasonable lifestyle and and, uh, a gainful career is pretty attractive. It's hard to, to be able to make ends meet to go out and start a social enterprise on day one, but you can be a social entrepreneur straight away. Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction. And I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about a, a business education is it's incredibly empowering to do that, to make a dent in the world. But then it can also be met with this depressing wall of reality that says, here's how much debt you have and whether or not you're going to take the risk. And I think a, a lot of people think, just like you said, that going out into the world is the only way they can kind of take that risk. And so what I hear most often, and I'm sure you hear it too at Ross, is oh, well, I'm just going to work here for a few years until I pay down my debts, and then I'll go do that thing. And I love this. This response is essentially, well, wait, why wait, right? You don't don't take the leap into doing your own startup thing, but you don't have to wait to make a dent in the universe. I think that's, that's right. And the work that Jerry Davis, my co-author, and I have have done here, along with many others who are fellow travelers in this space, uh, really looking at how do we help those investment bankers who want to change the world? Hmm. And I think the the best way to get into sort of the how do you do it, right? You know you're one of these people is 
What I what I love is the book is actually scheduled around or, or organized around th- this old school journalistic questions, right? Who, what, where, when, why, how. In particular, four questions, the when, the why, the who, and the how. I guess we'll start with the when because this is probably, especially to that group of the, the younger set, but really anybody is asking the question of when is the right time to make this change? I think so often we know... Uh, we know how to read what changes need to be made, but what we don't know how to read are, are sort of the waves, And to use the surfer talk. We don't know how to read when the right time to actually launch off is. How do we know when the organization's ready for that change that we're seeing? Well, there are a few indicators that uh, we encourage people to look out for, um, and being able to to time the wave is really important. We've seen some great uh, ideas that on paper seem like they make total sense flounder, and we've seen some ideas that on paper raise eyebrows of whether it's a good idea, uh, go on to be great successes and the timing of them makes a, a big difference. And so some of the things that we encourage people to look out for are, are changes in, in declared strategy or challenges uh, that, that are being faced by by the company, changes in leadership as well or, or um uh, fractures in the leadership structure where if mom says no, go ask dad uh, within the leadership. Uh, and also a sense of urgency we find to be consistently uh, factored, a burning platform, meaning that it's not just a nice to have idea, but it's a must do idea. And I think that speaks to the the next question that you sort of answer is is building that burning platform, the why, right? Why do we need to do this change? Or, or better said, right? It's another kind of how, because if I'm a social entrepreneur and I know what the changes need to be made, and I feel like the timing is right. I, there's still a lot of people I need to sell this idea to so that we can move it forward. So how, how do we how do we do that? Why? Uh, for the why, we take a look at two, two main aspects there. One is the master frame and for the organization to position an idea. And the second is the adapted frame for the different stakeholders involved. And so in any given organization, no matter how big, there are some elements of the culture that are pretty consistent across the company. And then there's variants within small, smaller units, which are in the case of the, the multi-billion dollar company still quite large. Uh, and But there's still a master frame and there are ways to uh, take a look at the organizational culture, uh, sometimes using software or using language analysis uh, techniques to actually try and surface the elements of the organizational culture such that when you're making the uh, pitch to the, the decision makers, you can be speaking in their language, uh, both explicitly from what you've observed, but also some of the elements of, of underlying culture. Uh, one of our, our interviewees expressed that the corporate antibodies kill anything that doesn't look normal. And uh, uh, so fitting in in the way that you speak is part of the the battle of, of getting your ideas heard. And so the second part after the master frame is really the adapted frame, that making the case to the stereotypical CFO and the stereotypical uh, head of HR may involve different uh, decision-making factors um, and different personality traits. And so being able to keep consistent with a master frame and and, uh, language while adapting the points that you emphasize to the the different stakeholders in the room at any given time is a real skill and art, art form there. 
Well, so, and and here's an interesting, I, by the way, I love, love, love that term corporate antibodies. Uh, I think it makes it makes perfect sense when I, you know, I wrote in the, in the last chapter of my book, I wrote about, I called it the mousetrap myth, but this idea that we are just great at uh, recognizing great ideas and the reality is a little bit different. We're terrible at recognizing great <laughs> ideas because of that. I wish I would have known the term corporate antibodies, right? Because essentially that's what happens. Anything that looks different, anything that looks not like the usual, we just sort of attack because it's not like our uh, our host. But I think that also speaks to what I, I, so this was one that I found the most interesting is the is the who. So who do we recruit? But also, because I think that's a concept, the who is similar to a lot of different change models. Like I think back to Cotter and the idea of building a guiding coalition is pretty pretty easy, but you actually, in the chapters, also talk about thinking through who in the organization or who in the network is going to resist your idea, right? Which I don't think we do so often. I think so often we think our, our idea is going to be great and here's who we need to recruit and no problem, we're going to recruit these people and then we're just going to drive the change. We never think through, well, who are the people who are going to be naturally resistant to this idea and how do we not necessarily fight those resist that resistance, but use it. You know, we, if you don't think about who's going to resist it, then you're just blindsided by it, and that's I think where a lot of change efforts die. Yeah, and uh, I think Scott Sonnenshine uh, from Rice University has done some work on uh, shifting the mindset from viewing people as resistors to be viewing them as resources. Where uh, how can you engage people through that adapted frame we talked about there uh, into a conversation where they will co-create the idea with you, they'll move along with you. Um, and in terms of bridging into the, the networks and, and the who, looking at the uh, both the decision makers, so who are the people that I need to get on board, who are the potential uh, derailers here, but also, what's the system of influence around them? Who are the people who they go to for advice um, and for consultation? Uh, knowing who, who they are uh, and how those relationships work actually means that you can mitigate the risk of getting a yes that turns into a no a couple of weeks later. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out because so often, like, you know, you, you talk about in that chapter a lot, you use the term social networks, et cetera, not like a Facebook and Twitter, although not all that indifferent, right? Because we like to think that it's easily mapped out in the hierarchy chart how you're supposed to go through this whole thing. And in reality, when you think through who are the who are the who are the bugs or the little angels and devils in the ear of these decision makers, it's usually not represented in the hierarchy. There's an informal element, too, I think. And Thinking through all of that and understanding the network around these decision makers is, I think, a really important point. And, of course, the the hierarchy is important, the reporting relationship, but it's really just one dimension of um, many that could be considered uh, in thinking about an x-ray of the organization and how people relate to each other, uh, that the, the reporting relationship is one one factor, but uh, the advice network is another, the, the energy networks who, who enjoy spending time with each other um, uh, and have informal influence are all different dimensions of the same puzzle that, that skillful entrepreneurs uh, find ways to, to unravel. Hmm. Hmm. And these, I think, are all things that uh, all of these questions, I think, you know, when I first read them, I got the opportunity. OK, these are these are some of the things to think through before you launch into it, although really they're questions to keep sort of asking yourself as you engage in that sort of la last question, the how, how do you use pick, how do you pick the right platforms and how do you figure out how you're going to uh, collaborate on this and really sort of mobilize your people? 
Um, I, for lack of a better question, how do you do the how? <laughs> uh, I think you're right that the, we see the how emerging oftentimes that, that the entrepreneur uh, working in the organization has an idea that he or she wants to advance and that that builds the picture becomes clearer uh, as you go through the timing to be able to adapt the idea to the changes in the strategy to uh, the different interests of the the stakeholders involved and build that idea further incorporating their input um, and uh, so it comes to the the mo- what in social movement theory is called mobilizing structures and it's really about having um, a sensible solution to propose one that that fits with the norms of the organization we love to think of ourselves as radical innovators uh, but oftentimes it's much easier to sell an idea that that people can relate to as as oh it was just like this program we did last year but in a different market uh, and so if you can can draw a good metaphor you can make the the mobilizing structure seem uh, less a less of a problematic idea for decision makers hmm hmm no that's a great point so um, there's a bunch of different, uh, inside the book, there's a bunch of different uh, case studies or lessons, et cetera, everything, uh, everything from sort of Arab Spring to uh, all sorts of U- U.S. political examples, et cetera. And I wonder, as I'm, I'm reading through it all, you, you do a great job of sort of weaving them into these kind of questions. And I began to wonder, so this is more of a personal question than a how do we change it, but what was your favorite uh, example from all of these different how do we how do we drive movements examples? Some are uh, obviously are inside organizations, others are just great lessons from large broad scale movements, but which one really fascinated you the most? I think my favorite, because it's so counterintuitive, uh, is Kevin Thompson's experience at IBM in uh, creating their corporate service core. So back in the the mid 2000s, uh, uh, Kevin was a returning Peace Corps alum who had gone to Cornell and got his MBA, uh, and then joined IBM uh, to to get started. And when they were brainstorming in in his team ideas for for new CSR programs at IBM, he pitched the idea of of doing a really a corporate Peace Corps, and in IBM's culture. Uh, at that time, and probably still in some cases, uh, he was almost literally laughed out of the room. It was just not not an idea that merited real consideration. Uh, yet, uh, fast forward to 12, 18 months, and uh, Chairman Sam Parmesano uh, announced the globally integrated enterprise, and uh, he was he created what in the when the opportunity structure uh, uh, opening for new ideas and possibilities that would advance that that uh, grand strategy for the company uh, and it was the burning platform because having announced this he actually needed to show evidence internally and externally that he was moving things forward and so Kevin proposed again uh, having continued to hold on to his idea and gently be be keeping it on the back burner but but uh, bubbling away, uh, he reproposed the corporate Peace Corps 
uh, as a way to send uh, IBM high potential folks on international assignments in a way that uh, uh, they could help the local communities work with nonprofits who couldn't previously or couldn't afford IBM services um, and uh, uh, really build, build out this program for a leadership development and market building strategy. Um, and the program was accepted, and it was ex expected to be a pilot. There's your, mo your sensible mobilizing structure um, uh, of just a few people. And it ended up being the most viewed blog on uh, IBM's website uh, that whole year by any, any, uh, any blog post that got the most uh, hits there. Uh, and it was named in, I think it was 2011, 2012, as uh, one of the top 100 innovations in IBM's history. Hmm. And I, you know, I can so, I think through IBM culture too, and I can just picture all of the the traditional blue suits, et cetera, thinking through this idea of a, we're we're going to be like the Peace Corps. What? And yet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's counterintuitive, but it, it also shows that the the right time matters. Uh, having the right uh, champions and decision makers and system matters. The framing of leadership uh, development and market building, as opposed to CSR matters um, and having a, a way of thinking about the mobilizing structure and communicating that 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 uh, is easy to support uh, all, all played their part for Kevin yeah yeah absolutely and and shows the value like you said of thinking through all of those different things I I want to transition a bit the book again changing your company from the inside out a guide for social entrepreneurs uh, mm -hmm. I, I want to transition a bit from the book to you and ask you a couple questions, but I would I would be remiss if I didn't also say, while we're still talking about the book, um, I love the design of the book for a slight hidden factor. Uh, so the cover, for those of you, you can look it up on, on uh, Amazon, et cetera, and then hopefully click buy. Um, but if you look at it, the inside cover is sort of inside the box, right, from inside out, and you see mm -hmm. inside this corrugated mm -hmm. box. And then the actual book, if you take the dust jacket off, is corrugated. I think that's really really cool i'm a fan of really yeah. well designed books so well done there i'm not sure who to give the hat tip to there but i'll give it to you um well done there it's really kind of funny to hold in your hand and see it at corrugated cardboard um okay that said let's let's transition to let's stay on the theme of books and ask you uh, what are you reading right now uh, i am staying on true to form and i'm reading christine bader's evolution of a corporate idealist She's coming to speak at the post the business conference at the law school in May, um, and uh, just really interested to compare notes with her. So I'm doing my homework. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it, you, we were chatting a bit uh, offline, and it's quite an interesting case, especially to hear the story and then think through the answers to the sort of the four questions, etc. Um, now I know, so this book just came out uh, a little while ago, and I know that uh, it's by no means launched. It takes a lot of work. I know that to be true from experience. It takes a lot of work to launch the book, get the message out, etc. But I also know you're a, you're a man of many vocations. So what's next for you? What are you working on? Well, much of the rest of the year is uh, continuing to build the center and teach, of course, but uh, uh, continuing to do talks, workshops, podcasts about the book. We, Jerry and I, my co-author and I, feel that uh, this is just a really important topic as a lever for change in the world. If you can get a big company, a Pfizer, a Dow, or a IBM to change uh, practices and policies, uh, it can really have a far-reaching effect uh, on the 
the employees and on the communities in which they work and their supply chains. So, so we really want to get this in as many hands as we can. Well, cool. Well, uh, I uh, want to help you amplify that. And to anybody listening, let's help amplify that. You do not need to run off and start your own venture to, to make a dent in the universe. You can do it uh, from the comfort of inside the box, from the comfort of inside those companies. And in fact, to be honest, if you want to make a lasting and resonating dent, they might need your help more than uh, just another startup. So thank you for, for pushing that message out. Uh, and we'll keep tabs on how it goes and how we can amplify it in the future. In the meantime, Chris, Thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks for having me on, Dave.